0: Reclaiming the Radical Boldness of Wesley to Craft an Inspiring Future for Methodism with Ashley Bogan-Breff, the General Secretary of the General Commission on Archives and History on episode number 12 of the To Be Courage podcast with Bishop Julius C. Trimble.
1: If only we can have a faith that is as radical, as informed and expressive and experiential as Wesley had, we might be able to craft something for the future and continuing United Methodist Church that truly is Wesleyan and is inspiring.
0: You are welcome to be encouraged with Bishop Julius C. Tremble. Bishop Tremble is on a mission to encourage you with the love of Jesus Christ so you can rise to your highest potential. On to be encouraged, Bishop Tremble speaks to a discouraged world with a good word on the pandemic, racism, the environment, human sexuality, and the state of the church, with a focus on centering your life on the love of Jesus Christ. Has there ever been a more needed time for an encouraging word to our world? This is your time to rise to your greatest potential and to be encouraged with Bishop Julius C. Trimble. Hello, good people, and welcome to to the To Be Encouraged podcast with Bishop Julius C. Tremble as your host. I'm your co-host, Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, a local church pastor in Indiana, and we like to come together to share a word of encouragement in a discouraged world. And one of the things we have to deal with is some of the challenges and indeed some of the discouragement in our own United Methodist Church as we have some division and schism at hand, and various things are going on, and And Bishop has asked us to invite, uh, to be a part of our show today, a very, uh, just a, a, a very excellent guest, and her name is Dr. Ashley Bogan-Dreff, and she is the General Secretary of the General Commission on Archives and History in our United Methodist Church, and in this role, she ensures that the United Methodist Church understands its past in order to envision a more equitable future for all Methodists, she comes to us with a Ph.D. from Drew Theological School, Drew Theological School. her master's from University of Chicago Divinity School, and she has taught at Hood Theological Seminary and High Point University and is the author of two books, Nevertheless, American Methodist and Women's Rights and Entangled, A History of American Methodism, Politics, and Sexuality. Uh, Bishop, we have quite a uh, esteemed guest with us. Why don't you help me welcome her today? Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Bogandreff, and
2: we're so glad to have you, and welcome in your new role as General Secretary of Archives and History. Uh, we're just so pleased that on a relatively short notice, you said yes to joining our podcast
0: uh, of Be Encouraged.
1: Of course. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, we are thrilled to have you. Especially, uh, I'll we'll say a little bit more about this in a minute, but uh, in terms of the it's pertinence of the date to today is we're recording this on April twenty-seventh, twenty 2022, and it's a few days from now on this Sunday, May 1, my understanding is when the global United Global Methodist Church will be created, and that'll be a significant date that we'll deal with. But the place I like to start, uh, actually, is this. Uh, you come to the church from a history uh, in your family and your education, and your teaching. But let's hear just a little bit about your faith story, how you came to Christ in the first place and how you kind of navigated life to end up in this role here now as the General Secretary of Archives of History.
1: Well, thank you. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's my, my faith story is one of uh, really just being born into the church. Both of my parents are ordained United Methodist clergy. My dad's an elder. My mom's a deacon. And so every single Sunday, uh, three services every Sunday, I was sitting in the pew <laughs> okay.
0: um,
1: listening to, you know, the mostly the same sermon that, that my dad would give um, three times a day every week.
0: We've got a PK and, on our hands, Bishop, is what we've got. <laughs> <don't> we? <laughs> a double
1: PK. Double PK. <laughs> and my mom yeah. was the minister of music. So, you know, for, for me, I really started engaging with my faith, probably when I joined the chancel choir, which was, I think, in like fifth grade. Um, wow. And for me, kind of, I've I've always had the experience of God through singing, and so that's that's been a special uh, connection that my mom and I have had. Um, you know, I think she directed just about every single choir I was ever in, and <laughs> I was in enough choirs that it would take two hands to count them. So oh that's goodness. that's kind of my personal faith journey. Um, professionally, you know, I I studied art history in undergrad and got into religious history kind of through art history because a lot of art is religious. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I remember I, I, on the whim, took a course in American religious history and learned about 19th century American Methodism and was so kind of taken aback as to like, who are these Methodists Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, that shout and that dance and that, you know, shake and that have all of these um, kind of challenges to the status quo, you know. Raised in a predominantly white United Methodist Church in Arkansas, that was just not how my experience of United Methodism was, and so it it led me on this journey. I just had to know, like, what happened? How did Methodism start like that? How did it end up, you know, what we might say is institutionalized now, or um, kind of uh, succumb to kind of white understandings of faith and expression, and so. That led me on on that journey, I ended up at the University of Chicago's Divinity School and then over here at Drew's Theological School um, and wanted to be a professor. That was always my goal. And I was doing that and and COVID hit um, and kind of in the back of my head, I'd always known that the General Secretary of Archives and History was a a post. Um, I'd formed uh, good relationships with both of my predecessors, both um, Bob Williams and Fred Day. And when the job opening came, I took a leap of faith, knowing that I am quite young um, and and relatively, I guess you could say, inexperienced when it comes to administration in um, certain levels. But I bring a lot of gifts and graces through my scholarship and my energy and, and things like that to the job. So this is this has kind of been my dream job, and I just never thought I would get it five years out of a PhD. <laughs> but that's what right, brought me here, here. and. I but here
0: think. you are, and you must you must have done something impressive because it's a bishop called me a couple of days ago. And he said, we have, we have to get uh, Ashley Bogendreff on our podcast. And so here we are. So, Bishop, I know you've got some things you really want to ask her about into for us to speak into the situation in our church and our world right now.
2: Yes, I just, uh, you know, uh, it, it seems like hours ago, which it probably literally was, uh, when she was sharing with the uh, uh, Council of Bishops, but I, I heard about Dr. Ashley Bogandreff and, uh, and, and through, her, through her predecessor as he was leaving as well. So uh, I've been very much interested and we've talked, uh, Brad, uh, about uh, the United Methodist Church, you know, our, mm-hmm. our history, uh, history related to racism, uh, because, you know, last year and this year, we, we, we touched a little bit, touched a little bit about on our work around and against racism in Indiana and across the United mm-hmm. Methodist Church. and. Also, uh, you, you made reference to an article I wrote after we received the uh, announcement of the postponement of General Conference, and uh, you remember, Brad. I wrote an uh, article saying I'm not leaving the United Methodist Church. Actually, Absolutely. I wrote actually I wrote an article about six years ago, mm-hmm. uh, ba- based on Al Green's song "Let's Stay Together," <laughs> and uh, I, and so I've always been kind of unapologetically a promoter of unity in the United Methodist Church. I'm I'm Raised Methodist. My parents were, uh, grew up in the Methodist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, AME Zion Church. And uh, when they moved to Chicago, uh, they just went to the closest Methodist church you could walk to with six children. So that's how I became United Methodist, Methodist Episcopal. And then in 1968, six, well, actually, our congregation, uh, it was in 69 or 70 when it actually changed and became. The United Methodist Church. So I grew up in a in the United Methodist Church uh, with the pastor who had marched with Martin Luther King Jr. So our church was kind of very much in the uh, social justice mode, but it was very much a promoter of young people in higher education and camping. So Brad, you and I have talked about this before. I'm a I'm an unapologetic proponent of camping, and 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 children all children having access to camping, whether they can afford it or not, because I I was afforded to camp when my Parents couldn't, when my mom, uh, after my dad died, you uh, couldn't afford to send us to all to camp. Uh, and so, but the United Methodist Church and United Methodist women and men made that possible. So, so this really was all based on the whole notion of I'm not leaving the United Methodist Church, Dr. Bogan, draft up. I said, I'm Methodist born, United Methodist bred, and when I die, I'll be a United Methodist dead. So, so, I often say, uh, in my cabinet, hears me say, I'm unapologetically Christian unashamedly United Methodist. I don't knock other religions. I married a Baptist who's now more United Methodist than I am. but uh, And I meet on a monthly basis with ecumenical judicatory leaders and have done interfaith work with others. So I, I don't knock other religions. And I don't even, I'm not even a big, uh, uh, Brad, uh, uh, I, I tell people at our in town hall, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Global Methodist Church. I'm still trying to be a faithful United Methodist. So you have mm-hmm. to talk to other people about mm-hmm. any new expressions. But uh, what I've told churches is that this notion that you have to leave is a misnomer. But this also, this notion that we've never experienced schism or or splitting before is maybe also a misnomer. Most people kind of remember around the the some people at least the central jurisdiction and and, and the separation in 1939. But uh, Dr. Bogendreth, I really like you to talk to us a little bit about this notion. Maybe we shouldn't panic over the, the this this idea that churches can actually split. I mean, there's all kinds of Methodist churches, and people forget that as well, uh, and as well as other denominations. So, can you help us understand this? You know, this maybe this period of time. I, I know a few years ago we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the of the uh, Reformation. Uh, maybe this is just a maybe this is just a manifestation of more reformation. I don't know, but can you help us understand from a historical perspective and maybe how you see what's playing out now in the landscape of of Christendom or or Methodism?
1: Of course. So, you know, it's it, you're exactly right. It is kind of um, I don't know if it's comforting to hear that we've been here before, but it, I, I think it is, you know, that Methodists historically have split more than we've come together. Um, and, and that's a really hard fact to swallow, but it's true. Um,
2: it's, it's hard to hear.
1: It—it It is, you know, but when you go back to, to even John Wesley, um, and that's what I've been doing a lot lately is really spending time with Wesley. You know, he was an ordained priest in the church of England in the Anglican church and, he creates this movement called Methodism within his denomination and is very um, adamant for most of his ministry that he's not splitting, right? Because he doesn't want to be labeled a quote unquote dissenter because then he loses a whole bunch of rights that he was very much enjoying. Um, But he builds this movement that directly challenges the Church of England, um, especially in his day. And eventually you know by the 1780s methodism has spread into Ireland and it has naturally come over to the colonies um, we have the American revolution going on and so in all of this context john wesley kind of gives permission for the first split to happen and that is what creates the methodist episcopal church in 1784 is john wesley's blessing and and <laughs> So key is breaking the rules of his own church in ordaining people who the church, the Church of England had said could not or should not be ordained. So John Wesley breaks his own ordination vows and seeks to ordain others and sends them to then begin the Methodist Episcopal Church in America in 1784. So Methodism wouldn't exist without a split. You know, we we don't go um, all the way back to the times of Jesus Christ, and so there has to be at least in terms of the United Methodist Church. Um, but there has to be some sort of institutional split for us to even come in into formation. And what's so interesting too, when you look at the American context, uh, even before the Methodist Episcopal Church is formed there's already division about what Methodism means because you have Methodism coming from different places. It's coming from Ireland. It's coming from Britain. Um, It's changing according to where it is in the colonies. So if it's up in new England in the New York area, it might have a, a bit more of an Irish flavor. If it's down in the Delmarva area or kind of the mid Atlantic, it's going to be more British and more Anglican. So within that you have differences emerging and after it's formed in 1784, you know, it takes a little while for kind of the institution that, that we know to to come into existence. But at the very first general conference, which happens in 1792, there are two splits. And that's at the first general conference. So mm. we, we, I mean, that's just, it's one of those did things. You, it's did so you say two to, splits? Two, it, yeah. Okay, so, well, let's hear about it.
0: Are you talking about the Christmas conference? I just want to clear. be clear. <laughs> no,
1: the Christmas Conference is the founding conference. In okay, I, thank you. Thank Our first quote unquote general conference, which has minutes and a book of discipline produced after, is in 1792. Okay. And thank it's you. at that conference where there are two um, splits or splinterings, you might say. So one of them is led by um, an Irish Methodist named James O. Kelly, and he was. Worried about the power that the bishops had over the movement. So, back then, there were really, I think there were still only two bishops, Bishops Asbury and Bishop Koch, and they appointed district superintendents, or what were back then called general superintendents. Um, And those, or sorry, back then they were called presiding elders. And, And they appointed those instead of the preachers having any kind of election. Over who was going to be their presiding elder. And so they, O'Kelly saw this as kind of an abuse of power, of Koch and Asbury are saying, are choosing who's going to form essentially their cabinet. And this is all in the context of the American Revolution, right? Where democracy and election and choice is so um, important. And, And most people would be familiar with the rhetoric of. You know of of what it means to elect somebody and not have somebody chosen for you. So, so O'Kelly is frustrated um, by that. He's also frustrated that initially, when the Methodist Episcopal Church is formed in 1784, it makes a very bold and blatant stance against slavery. But Methodism starts spreading the most throughout the South, where you not only had Um, white clergy being harassed for being a part of the Methodist Episcopal Church and and their lives kind of being endangered. But you also had um, kind of a a clash of cultures, a clash of of understandings between kind of this anti-slavery stance and this desire to spread the word of God and this um, region, which was so heavily and economically dependent upon the institution of slavery. So James O'Kelly not only has kind of critique against the way that bishops have empowered themselves, but also a critique about how the Methodist Episcopal Church has begun to compromise its stance on slavery. So by 1792, it's, it's no longer this bold stance that it was in 1784. By then, um, you could still join a Methodist society if you enslaved a person, but it was understood that you had a year to emancipate your slaves. And by the time we get to 1800, that's really a policy on paper and rarely in practice because Methodism from early on gets so consumed with, with growth, and it likes that it's spreading quickly. Um, it likes the power that comes with that and the prestige that comes with that. But so O'Kalley has those two critiques, and he leaves um, kind of right in the middle of that first general conference and forms what he calls the Republican Methodists, Mm. Which has that sense of election to it, right? Now that's right. The the name Republic mm. within Republican Methodist kind of hints at that, and it takes a very bold stance against slavery as well. Um, that denomination goes on and becomes what is now the United Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ, wow. and so we have common roots um, with 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 those uh, denominations that exist today. The other split that happens really is one of those that's um, very local. It's mostly under the leadership of Reverend Hammett, who is predominantly based in Charleston, South Carolina. He forms what's called the Primitive Methodists. And again, it's going to be over the appointive power of bishops. So he found a congregation that he felt like he was having a large impact in. Um, They enjoyed his preaching and his ministry style, and the bishop asked him to move He didn't want to. And so he splits off and kind of forms what is called the Primitive Methodist Church. Um, But that version of Primitive Methodism doesn't last beyond his death in 1803. Um, Mm -hmm. There would be other denominations throughout our history that have also claimed uh, the title Primitive Methodist. So this is where it all gets a little convoluted. But Mm -hmm. I mean, from the from the get go, from our very first general conference, there are two splits and. I think between 1784 and 1844, 1844 is the the big institutional schism between the North and South that most people reference when they talk about Methodist splits. There are about 12 splits that happen. Um, And these are ones that are going to have kind of enough people leaving to make it into the history books. So the, the primitive Methodists of Charles of Charleston, South Carolina, rarely make it into the history books because they're so small and so short-lived. But when you're looking at kind of the, the quote unquote, larger splits or splinterings, um, there are 12 between within kind of that 60 year period. And eight of them involve race in some way. And all of them involve a challenge to the itineracy. And so you can see that the two, Core aspects that people challenge the most when it comes to splits and splinterings, and you can see this still in today's schism that we have, are kind of how do we understand um, race, particularly when it comes to biblical interpretation, and what are we we doing with this itineracy? What are we doing with this point of system? In other words, why are we a connectional church and not a congregational church? I can keep going. I, I just want to kind of... <laughs> well, let,
0: let me interject just a little bit there. Uh, and I'm having to refresh my uh, own reading and classes I took in seminary as well. But was, uh, was or was not the Salvation Army and some other relatively well-known groups a part of this, a Free Methodist, a Wesleyan groups? I don't know when they came along. Uh, maybe even perhaps Seventh-day Adventist? I can't... Remember that on that one, or maybe the Millerites where the, some of those came out of this period of time as well. Am I, or am I often off track? Well, well,
2: even, I, even some of the Pentecostal movements, but. Uh-huh. but, go, um, but
1: yeah. Most of, most of those are going to be after the civil war. Um, so I the see. free, free yeah. well, or at least how about this after the 1844 mm-hmm. split. Mm-hmm. So the 1844 split that, that divides the MEC into a Northern and Southern church, um, is largely over slavery. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it very much is. The, the polities that, that come out of both churches in terms of the North and South are ones that, that are largely identical except for the stance on slavery. After that, we still see divisions and splinters and schisms and even mergers within the Northern branch and the Southern branch. Mm-hmm. So the Free Methodists um, began in 1860 out of the MEC, that would be the North, Mm -hmm. Um, And it's over a large number of things, not only kind of, uh, again, taking a stronger anti-slavery stance, but also um, one of their main critiques is that the MEC had become very institutionalized and it was catering to upper classes and kind of the crowds you might find on Main Street more than its earlier forms where Methodism spread throughout the frontier and was very much a plain speech. Um, faith It was very much a bodily experience back in the in the early 19th century. And by the 1860s, okay. you know, it's, yet, it's probably more of the, the quote unquote white methodism. That There's the all, all, all
0: kinds of reasons for division. And I'm a little curious about, since you've mentioned about, you know, the racial uh, component being so important there in that pre-Civil War period, uh, were there, was that, was already the beginnings of the AME and AB Zion, was that already coming around then, or was that after the Civil War? And also, were any churches anywhere in Northeast, wherever, integrated at all, or were they still pretty well divided wherever they were at?
1: So, yes, the AME um, officially formed in 1816, but it took about 30 years to form. So, okay. uh, Richard Allen and a group of his followers walk out of historic or out of St. George's in Philadelphia. Um, I believe it's in 1787 uh, because they were kneeling for worship. Uh, They already had segregated worship services. Um, Black Methodists at this time had the earliest ones and white Methodists showed up and wanted, wanted to start their services, but black Methodists were were still praying. Mm -hmm. And so um, some of the white ushers, pull Richard Allen off of his knees while he's praying and escort him out. And that is when um, him and his group of followers kind of walk about a mile down the road, uh, found what is called uh, Bethel uh, church and found the free African society. That's part of the MEC until 1816. Um, So it becomes kind of a, a separate black Methodist society that still has some sort of connection with the MEC until 1816, but is also in legal disputes with the MEC over church property. And so, they, okay, yeah. so
0: they had the trust clause back then too, apparently. They did, some, they, did okay. they did,
1: they definitely did. And so what what happened though is Richard Allen bought a plot of land and built a church. And because it was with the Free African Society and had was using the Book of Discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church's white clergy tried to take oversight and control and ownership of it. Hmm. And so this is what led to the legal cases that eventually lead to that congregation and the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1816.
0: As I would understand it then, the practices that were happening in society, in business, in commerce, in government, were also being reflected in in the church, basically, in terms of... Yes. So, so, Brad,
2: let me just interject uh, a little bit of history that uh, uh, Dr. Dreff might be too young to remember, but she maybe not. Uh, so, so in two, the year 2000, General Conference was held in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I was the district superintendent of Cleveland at the time,
0: wow.
2: and that General Conference was noted for it, it, kind of made national news because several bishops were arrested in a, a, around. Uh, inclusion, human sexuality. There was protests against the Cleveland Indians at the time, the baseball mm-hmm. team, which we had been protesting for for, for some years. But uh, one of the less noted things that happened at that time was there was a uh, repentance service, mm-hmm. that, w- and we had representatives from the Pan Methodist family, AME, AME Zion, CME. There was repentance for the division around the racism in the Methodist movement that resulted in the, the, the establishment of, of, uh, of our sister congregations in Methodism. But there was kind of a, another protest that took place because there were Blacks, I remember some of this too, because there were some Blacks who walked out because they felt that the General Conference did not acknowledge the fact that there were always Blacks who did never left the Methodist Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. So it is true that other denominations were formed, you really have to. One of the guests we will have too is Bishop Forrest Stith at one point, who's one of the few people still around that can tell the whole story, along with Ashley. But I remember that uh, uh, as a as a superintendent, and I and I didn't know all of the history, but I had s- served a church where one of our retired clergy in the congregation had been part of the central jurisdiction, and he knew all of this all of this history. The fact that so to your question earlier, Brad about Blacks have always been part of the Methodist Church mm-hmm. and some have never left, even when there was segregation within the church. Even my parents' church, the history of that church really comes out of the Methodist church in Montgomery, which which gave them the gave them the land and told them they had to move move the church, which they moved the church, which is now right across from the Equal Justice Institute. But the point of that church, A, the AME Zion Church for this, is first. I don't know how many years they had a white pastor, so they didn't—they didn't even have their own pastor until until later. So part of the history is we've kind of dealt with these uh, what I call contradictions and ambiguity. And I've always said this: if you can't deal with some level of ambiguity, United Methodism may not be for you. Mm-hmm. But you know, God still is able to do wonderful things, and amidst all of these contradictions. But the but our current our current division around human sexuality some people seem to think this is the first time we have really had major division over something that has lasted for a period of time and it's interesting how long race has been part of Mm -hmm. the division along with other things that have spurned other Mm -hmm. christian movements so uh it's it's the story that the history is so important uh and uh, uh one of the things my wife says all the time she said we ought to be having history every year in every church, just history, Methodism 101, along with, you know, along with Disciple Bible Study and other things.
0: Because of the implications it has to our present circumstances. And Mm -hmm. I know we could get, we could go very granular on the history. And I love that in many ways. I'm (laughs) kind of a nerd this way. Uh, In fact, my quick story is when the Methodist Episcopal Church South came along there's still some of those churches that are still pretty powerful in the South right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, there was a huge United Methodist church on one side of one area near the Vanderbilt campus where I was at, you go three or four blocks South and there was this huge Southern Methodist church still there. And uh, you know, so the implications are still there, but what I want to get at with you here, uh, Ashley and, and Bishop is, I really want us to start to think about what are the implications of all this historical knowledge that we have here in our present circumstances. And I'm really interested to see, you know, we, we talked the racial issue, if there's any other, you know, theological or social issues, such as the matter of homosexuality, which are really on the forefront of our present circumstances that have, that we can learn from to apply to now. And what, you know, there's a lot of gnashing of teeth and there's a lot of, you know, angst about what's going on here. I mean, I get calls as a pastor. I got a call. I'm in Indiana. I got a call from a former parishioner in Florida the other day who was in tears about this and just really didn't know what to do. There's, I, I just, what I'm looking for is what are some things we can bring to the table to help pastors, to help people, local church people that are making some pretty dramatic decisions, you know, about their own individual, you know, an individual United Methodist. You know, uh, you just were baptized at Easter or whatever, uh, or converted at Easter, and then what are they going to do now? Well, that local church, that pastor, there's implications here. And I'd, I'd really like you to speak for a minute or two, actually, about what you feel are the implications or learnings we can take from the past we can apply to our present circumstances.
1: Um, you know, one of the the very curious Themes that runs through a lot of our splits, and that relates to the the question of race and of sexuality, is the idea of the itinerancy Um, Mm. that that being connectional. You know, we've over the last, I think, three or four decades, the United Methodist Church has had what my predecessor Fred Day calls a sneaking congregationalism, Mm. Um, and you know, we're, we're we're still itinerant, but. Both of my parents were United Methodist pastors who served one church for 21 years. You know, I I know that's rare, but it's also not. And so, how do we how do we still be itinerant, and and keep the heart of what Wesley meant for itinerancy, which was, in my opinion, um, pushing people to see religious authority in people that they might not see it on their own and pushing people who have a call from God to serve in places they might not choose on their own, right? So there's this kind of push and pull balance that that works through itinerancy where you begin to expand the work of God and the spirit of God and the word of God in and through people and spaces that you might not find it unless you're kind of pushed to do so. And so we see some of that when it comes to cross-racial and cross-cultural appointments. Uh, we see it when it comes to uh, people having a woman pastor for the first time. And we're seeing it now when people have someone who identifies as LGBTQIA coming as their pastor for the first time. So it's it's really kind of this this itineracy that's at the heart of all of this. And when you look at when churches have split off, they all became congregational. They all got rid of the appointment system, or they made it qualified to where the pastor could, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, challenge the, the appointment, right? And so the appointment's either put in the hands of the board of trustees or the pastor's given the right to challenge it. And that interrupts that itinerant system some, and interrupts what makes Methodism so unique and caused it to expand at such a drastic pace, not only through England and Ireland, but in the British colonies and throughout the United States and throughout the world, really. Um, so I would say, you know, let's not be afraid of the itineracy. I think it's got a very unique and specific intention behind it. And it's just how it has gotten intertwined with social and political um, and regional and cultural conversations that the itineracy has become challenged in the way that it has you know and and a lot of this um in my work at the general commission on archives and history uh, one of the practical tools that i can offer people who are wanting to know more is that we are beginning to produce online history online courses through we're calling it the united method or the um history hub it's it's through teachable.com we are launching on friday hopefully at noon by five p.m at the latest (laughs) Um, a course called Splits, Separations, and Reconciliations. And it is a six-week course that you can take as an individual. You can do it as a small group, a small congregation, or even as a larger group or a large, large congregation. It's, and it's you, centered, you
0: said a piece, and the title of that had something to do with reconciliation. Would you say the title yes. one more time?
1: Splits, separations, and reconciliations. So I think
0: uh, that's an important I'm, title there. Yeah,
2: I'm, great Bishop, reconciliation I'm glad reconciliation was in there someplace.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I to you, maybe you, maybe you could speak to that, uh, Bishop, as well, because mm-hmm. I do think we have to learn from our past that uh, you know we the. There's ebbs and flows in our history, and sometimes it ebbs out, meaning it separates, and sometimes it comes back together in a different form. And you, you know, to talk about the itineracy, for instance, I think the itineracy, this is just my opinion here, is going to have to change and going to have to be adjusted in some way or another and may or may not survive. I don't know, whatever the reiterations of the United Methodist Church becomes. Mm-hmm. But I think there is something to be learned from this and the reconciliation piece. I'm, and I was going to, We'll put connections and links to this in our show notes at uh, tobeencouraged.com. Uh, but, Bishop, do you want to speak to that at all about the implications of what, uh, of what uh, actually shared here about the present state of the United Methodist Church? You know, we have the global Methodists right at our doorstep. Uh, we've got all kinds of things happening, delay of general conference, what have you. Do you want to speak to the implications of what she shared here?
2: First, I'd like to say a word of hope to those who may be listening or will hear this podcast. Too often when we think about splits or schisms, we are uh, really, it's a conversation about what are we running away from? You know, what are we running away from or what are we hoping for? There's one of my favorite African proverbs that says, that which we hope for is always better than what we have. So I think the church has always been evolving, including the United Methodist Church. So you make reference to, for example, open itinerancy or itinerancy. Uh, you know, this is my 40th year. I was ordained a deacon in my second year at Garrett at, in seminary. So, so it has changed quite a bit, I think, since then. Uh, itinerancy, but I think itineracy, itinerancy, uh, grace, and mutual ownership of the mission with, with laity and clergy are hallmarks of United Methodism. So, you know, itinerancy, uh, our emphasis on on grace, Wesleyan grace. And and the mutual ownership of, of mission, or as we like to say in Indiana, missional movement, an outward focus of the church that is owned by both clergy and laity, uh, hallmarks of of Methodism. I, I'll, I there's a there used to be a sign, Brad. I don't know if you if you lived in uh, in, in student housing in Evanston, but uh, not far from where we lived on Noisy Street uh, in Evanston, in front of a church that said the sign of God is you will be led where you did not intend to go. Uh, And so my first appointment, when I was graduating from seminary, unlike some of my classmates who weren't United Methodists, most of us, we we had a place where we were going because the bishop or superintendent had, so we had a place to actually go serve. But the place I was assigned was not the one I thought I should go to. So I was the first Black pastor of a and a cross-racial appointment. It wasn't in the city of Chicago. It was, you know, North Chicago by Great Lakes Naval Base, and most of the family members were military or retired military. But I look back on that and say one of the gifts of United Methodism was actually itinerancy. And so I went there. I served there. Then I then I then I was I, I itinerated from Illinois to Ohio. And after twenty years, when I elected a bishop, I itinerated to Iowa, and then after in 2016, I itinerated to Indiana. So uh, I know that's not the same journey, but it, I served two churches uh, in, in Ohio, or two churches in Chicago. So we've moved you know, a number of times uh, in, 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 in over these 40 years. Uh, and I think itinerancy has to change. It has changed uh, because you have often in, in families, two people who are working, or you have different family constellations. Our, my mother-in-law lived with us because of health concerns for 20 years, and so there's all kinds of dynamics that have to that have to happen. And but I do think there is a creeping, uh, as you say, uh, congregational nature. And sometimes people are running to something that they think will provide more freedom, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a cost that we end up paying. And some of that what we pay, I think, is 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 that our witness may be weakened when we think it's going to be strengthen. but i think in all of this god finds a way to use uh use 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 followers of christ so uh, yes. i don't i don't i don't lament over god being able to use us regardless of yes what may yes. happen
0: well as we kind of bring this conversation around to bring this ship in the port as it were um hmm doctor uh Asher actually Bogandreff, I just want to ask you, we, the name of our podcast here, Bishop Trimple's podcast, is To Be Encouraged. And that's part of his mission, his, his mantra, is to be encouraged no matter what. And so I'd just like to ask you as our guest here today that given what you know and the circumstances we are, uh, what is encouraging to you right now about what is going on? and what we uh, know as the United Methodist Church? What is encouraging to you?
1: Um, I would say two things. First, um, I'm I'm going to kind of toot the history horn, and that is that people are getting interested in our history. And I think that has to do with we're having these conversations around what does it mean to be United Methodist? And so people are looking to the past to, to try to find some sort of thread that connects us back to Wesley. And so as a Methodist historian, as General Secretary of Archives and History, the fact that people are are asking me to be guests on podcasts and, and on panels and tell our story is very encouraging. But what's also really encouraging right now is that we have a chance that we haven't really had necessarily in the past to stay united methodist to continue to be united methodist but in a new way right to to kind of reclaim what it means to be methodist and when you look back at at wesley um he was not afraid of kind of angering those around him um mm-hmm. he knew he was being radical he knew he was that he was being banned from churches he was being banned from pulpits but he followed that that impulse to reach out to those who are marginalized, to do the work of faith, right? Talk about, um, Bishop, what you were talking about with with the, the outreach that's, that's shared between both clergy and lay, that that emphasis that, that Wesley brought to the movement of Methodism that wasn't necessarily present in his day in the Church of England is what we need to try to reclaim and that boldness to do it right the boldness to deny the institutional church and ordain others and follow the spirit of god um if if only we can have a faith that is as radical as informed and expressive and experiential as wesley had we might be able to craft something for the future and continuing United Methodist Church that truly is Wesleyan and is inspiring. And that to me is a sense of hope if if we're bold enough to do it.
0: Wow, great. But wow. well, before we get to give the uh, bishop the last word here, how can people be in connection with you if they choose to uh, learn more about archives and history? Is there a website people can go to, for instance?
1: For us, yes, um we have our our website it is under con- it's not under construction but we're rolling out a new website in the fall. Um, but you can still find us at gcah.org. Um, and then our online course platform is um com, and you can awesome. also get to that through our website.
0: And we'll put connections to that at our 2beencouraged.com website. Thank you. Bishop what uh, what encouraging word? We always like to give you the last word of what are you encouraged about today, particularly in the context of our conversation today.
2: Well, it's, it's uh, this has been a great conversation, and I hope we can continue it, and and that uh, Dr. Ashley Bogan Dref would join us in in the future along with others. There's a text from the Book of Proverbs, Proverbs 23, uh, that says, "Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off." So I believe that our hope is never cut off, or or brought to, brought to an end, even in times of quote, unquote, division or uncertainty or ambiguity, uh, that God is still doing new things. I get the benefit as a bishop this past week. I was preaching at one of our churches near the airport in Indianapolis, Mount Olive Ministries United Methodist Church. And Robbie, a little eight-year-old, stood with me. And they confirmed, uh, they baptized three. They confirmed, this is not a large membership church. But it's a church in a neighborhood and a community that really is that gets it. When if if I were if I were just moving into that neighborhood or, or or met some of these folks who are feeding folks all week long, I would say, hey, this is a church I would join. They when they say all, they mean all. I mean everybody was was kind of welcome there, and I see this happening time and time again. Uh, and it's almost as if people are saying, uh, waking up in the morning, Brad and Ashley, and saying. God, give me my assignment. I, I'm, not in, I'm not a delegate to general conference. <laughs> I, I may not even be at annual conference. Just give me my assignment. And so uh, I am, I'm optimistic uh, and hopeful. And, uh, and, and I know that, that sometimes uh, people may be discouraged. But I think the question that uh, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. asked is still a question we, we should keep before. It's the most important question is often, what are we doing for others? And others have said this, but certainly Jesus says this, you know, the good news needs to be good news to the poor. And if it's not good news to the poor, it may not really be good news at all. So uh, to all those who listen to the podcast, those who will join us, we certainly say be encouraged. And we look forward to further conversations, both on church and society. Uh, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: Absolutely. Well, we just uh, thank our guest uh, today, Dr. Ashley Bogan-Dreff from the General Secretary of the Commission on Archives and History for being our guest today. And we look forward to being with you again very soon on the To Be Encouraged podcast to help you to be encouraged in your life of faith. Consider yourself encouraged and appreciated for listening To be encouraged with Bishop Julius C. Trimble. Now, please share the blessing and encourage others in your life to listen to be encouraged. You can do just that by pointing your people to the website tobeencouraged.com. That's T O B E E N C O U R A G E D.com. Or connect through Apple Podcast, where you can follow, rate, and review To Be Encouraged with Bishop Julia C. Trimble. When you do that, you're doing your part to bring a good word to a discouraged world. Remember to listen next week, To Be Encouraged with Bishop Julia C. Trimble, and never forget, God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it.